you found the Speech Uncensored podcast. Welcome to a place where you can nourish your brain with medical SLP awesomeness and join a community of professionals who seek to enhance our impact in the medical setting. Today's episode features Dr. Audrey Holland, one of our field's leaders in the realm of aphasia therapy and research. (laughs) It's such a privilege to have Dr. Holland on the podcast today to discuss the past, the present, and the future of aphasia therapy. I am Leanne Porter, and I want to dive into today's talk, so let's go. Hello, Dr. Holland. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Oh, I am wonderful. I am so thrilled to get the chance to sit down and talk with you about all things aphasia therapy related. This is really exciting. Well, it's really nice for me too. And it's a very comfortable venue. It's kind of, it's lovely. I like it. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, Well, Audrey, I would love it if you would tell people a little bit about yourself. Okay, I will do that. Uh, I'll stick basically to who I am in my professional life and uh, leave the rest of it up for grabs. But uh, <laughs> I, when I went to graduate school, which was 150,000 years ago, uh, I almost immediately decided that although my dissertation was in child language, I almost immediately decided that that wasn't where my interests were. And so almost from the beginning of my professional career, uh, I was over my head in aphasia. And at that point, um, I was, this is sort of circumstantial, but I ended up marrying a man who uh, was on the Harvard faculty. And that meant I lived in Boston. And that meant that the Boston VA was right up the street. And I was teaching at Emerson College. So I just wormed my way into aphasia grand rounds uh, at the Boston VA. And that's where I really got my feet wet in aphasia. And uh, I've never left the field. I just add this as a kind of interesting anecdote, but uh, four days after my son was born, uh, it was time for the Boston VA Grand Rounds. And so my mother was staying at our house. And so what do I do? I go to the, I go to the Boston VA when my son was four days old. So you can see that was a long period of my life tied up with, with uh, Boston and Emerson College and the Aphasia uh, Center at the VA. Uh, we moved to Pittsburgh, and I, where I had actually done my graduate work, and I joined the faculty there in the speech department and sort of worked my way up. Uh, and then uh, ultimately went to uh, the medical school in Pioneer uh, uh, Hospital in, uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. And from there, uh, uh, decided that Pittsburgh had been too long in my life, and I needed a, a change. And so off to, off to the University of Arizona I went. And so I've been at Arizona in some form or other ever since. That was over 20 years ago. And uh, my career has been Partially, partially research, partially teaching, but I have never been able to take a step out of clinical interaction. That's kind of the, the bread and butter of my feeling about who I am. So I've been around this world for a very long time, and I think I've I think I've actually done almost everything there is to do in the field. So that's sort of who I am. Excellent. Um, Okay. So I was hoping the next thing we could talk about was LPAA. I would be thrilled to talk about LPAA because 
I think I've been concerned with LPAA issues before LPAA happened. And uh, that happened in the early 90s, I believe. And um, uh, that was the brainchild of a whole bunch of very foresighted speech language pathologists who decided that it's one thing to worry about the impairment of aphasia, and it's quite another thing to worry about the consequences of aphasia and how do people get back to life. And so they actually uh, gave birth to this movement, the LPAA, which has become uh, a major uh, force for change in the aphasia world. Now, they didn't discover the importance of helping people to learn to get along every day. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm doing some writing now on uh, the history of aphasia and aphasia treatment. And it's pretty clear that although the early guys in the whole study of aphasia seemed not to be the least bit interested in the people who had the problem, by the 60s, that was a changed story. And I think that if you're going to trace back the history of LPAA in the United States, you have to trace it back to Martha Taylor Sarnoff and the beginning of the functional communication profile, which I think really was the first time that people started seriously thinking about, ooh, does what I do really affect what happens to people in their daily lives? And that ended up getting uh, more and more traction. And by the time the 90s rolled around and the, the incredible group of foresighted people who got together to uh, develop uh, life participation approaches to aphasia as a set of principles uh, that should guide and guide therapy. I mean that was that was really where it started in the 90s, and there has been, in my opinion, there's been kind of a a revolution, and it's happening. It is not by far over, but it just keeps. Mm -hmm respect and traction. So that's a long answer to a, a, a long history, actually. I know. I was like, actually, I feel like that's a very brief and succinct answer to what could be a very, you know, large and thorough answer. Because as you mentioned, it has a very long history. Um, and I broke one of my own rules. I always like to try to um, say what the acronym stands for at the very beginning. So thank you for saying the acronym out for me in your description. So LPAA is the Life Participation Approach for Aphasia. Um, aphasia therapy in this country has been around since 1904. Check that out before, you, before we started this interview. Uh, a man named Mills, uh, who saw, wrote a paper about this man he saw who he was trying to get help get over his language problem. But the real impetus for all the therapy in the United States really was the end of World War II and uh, what happened in the United States at, at that point. But that was all pretty much school, kind of like school learning, trying to learn language over again. So it was a little different. But the history is peppered with concerns with life and how to make life better. And it isn't just learning language. Yes, and I think that's such an important part that I know me as a clinician, sometimes in the past at least, I have lost sight of. I've just focused on the impairment and trying to rectify the impairment and not giving near enough consideration to that person who is experiencing this change in their communication. What are their needs? What are their wants? How do they use communication? How do they engage with other people? 
what are the problems there? Not based on when they name X amount of whatever's in X amount of time. <laughs> well, when, when's the last time anybody asked you to do that? You know, in the real world. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it's sometimes, I think I've always been very, uh, 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 maybe even dismissive of stuff that never took another step into life. And as the LPA principles say, it isn't just the person with aphasia. I mean, it's the family and everybody who's affected by that problem. And that has, I think, changed things. I mean, I, 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 my belief is that there are three experts when you do therapy. One is the person with aphasia. You don't know what that's like. I don't know what that's like, and I've been trying to figure that one out for a hundred years. The person who lives with that condition, the spouse or the, the caregiver or the, the somebody else in the environment, and then there's you, and you bring that expert stuff, but that's like a three-legged stool, and you're only one leg. You're mm -hmm. No, uh, you just, you don't have the answers. You just have a third of them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I really like that model. Um, I think it's really accurate. We and I've my my stool has been so unequal, like because I've been pushing my leg up way higher than the other two. And um, since speaking with Sarah Barr, having her on the podcast, and learning from her and the work that she's done. Um, I'm recognizing I need to to bring my part down and do a lot more listening about what are what are they experiencing, what's important to them, and how can I use what I know to help them with, achieve those goals. And so that's been really exciting for me. I don't want to single these people out, but Sarah Barr, uh, Becky Kayyem with primary progressive aphasia. Uh, people like Katie Ann Strong with uh, understanding and getting around the importance of telling your story. I mean, there's a whole group of people who are kind of saying, okay, but well, we know how to do regular, regular impairment-based. Why don't we just move to some impairment-based uh, approaches over into workable everyday life stimuli you know so yeah uh and i i think it's a very exciting time to be a speech therapist right now i do too i do too i'm really excited about what i'm learning and and changing about my own practice and the metamorphosis that's going on there so that's really exciting and so one of those really cool resources that people may not be aware of is aphasiaaccess.org Right, right. And I understand you are highly involved with aphasia access. Can you tell me more about it? Yeah, I'm uh, one of the people that I think gave it a kick in the pants in the beginning, but uh, which is a, a lovely little story. But it started uh, with Mike Adler at the Mike Adler aphasia, at the Adler Aphasia Center and his wife Elaine, uh, who were thinking about doing other aphasia centers around the country. And I was thinking, no, you don't do that. You find out what people want. And maybe in the Adler Center, we do what those people want, but that isn't necessarily the same as Omaha, Nebraska, or wherever. So I suggested that one of the things we might do was to sit down and talk to people who uh, were working in aphasia centers and with people from the standpoint of LPA and see what was all going on and finally realized that we, we don't talk to each other. So it was a group of about 20 people who got together and Mike Edler paid for this thing, 25 I think were there. And 
I kid you not, it was a love fest. I mean, everybody was just like, oh, I could talk about aphasia to these people. They'll understand. They understand where we're coming from. And it was just two days of the most intense, fun discussions that it went on and on and on. And at the end of that meeting, somebody said, uh, I think it was Catherine Shelley from uh, West Texas, said, we got to do this again. And everybody said, yeah. And so to you, I don't know, maybe only a year later, we did it again, same group of people, a few more. And when that meeting was over, we said, it got to go on. And out of that came aphasia access, which is was started by people needing to talk to other people about LPAA principles. How do you put them in operation in groups? How do you work them into your clinic? And that's from whence cometh aphasia access. Uh, we wrote the guidelines for aphasia access in a weekend. And because nobody had any disagreements on anything, so we just kind of, you know, dashed them out. And that's that's the background. So it's you know, it's now. I meant to check this, and I didn't. I think there are probably like maybe 250 members to a page accidents, at least that many, uh, and growing and doing educational stuff. And uh, they had a wonderful series of. Uh, uh, lectures, kind of like a module that you could fit into a course. You don't have to know anything about aphasia access because it's all done for you, and you can or uh, LPAA. It's all you know, and you can just plug that into a regular uh, impairment-oriented course. Uh, there's all kinds of services for people to look. I'm uh, proselytizing, and I'm sorry, but I really feel very strongly about this group. And I've been privileged to go to two of their three meetings. And it is just one of the most uplifting things you could possibly do. Uh, and go and learn and find all these people who think like you do. It's very, very fun, very nice. So yes, yeah, that's pushing awesome. the membership. <laughs> well, I went online and they have a lot available on their website. They have webinars, they have a podcast, and they have videos that describe LPAA, how to use it, um, the benefits. Um, so they have a lot of free resources um, because I believe the webinars are for sale or they're free to members. So yeah, if you decide to join and have a membership there, then you can learn from their webinars as well for you know, the price of your membership. Mm -hmm. So yeah, listeners, if you are all about aphasia and you haven't checked out aphasiaaccess.org, like please do. And the links will be in the show notes as well on speechuncensored.com. So that will be there. Um, Audrey, if it's okay with you, can we talk about some of the assessments that you've been a part of? Um, the scan and the cattle three. Uh, cattle three means that there have been uh, two that preceded it, uh, and it was it's a test. Uh, it's sort of it's a behavioral inventory, so that you could actually sort of not necessarily follow people around, but you can use simulated activities to see how people really handle some of the issues that. Uh, affect their uh, daily life. Uh, and it's rock bottom. It isn't fancy. It's, it's, you know, it's really the fundamental kind of things that basic communication stuff. But it was uh, actually by a federal grant. And what we did was to follow a whole bunch of people around for four hours uh, and just see what they really did before making any judgments about what they really did. And out of that, we had a big sample of people. And frankly, uh, I've written a paper on what we observed that I think is just as interesting as the test itself. 
But uh, as you can imagine, since that was, I don't know, late 70s maybe, uh, life has changed. And so there are things that have really required us to just sort of change the pictures, move along, make things more relevant. And uh, so it's just the same principles of still looking at what people are doing every day. But in this test at the moment, we obviously, Cattle 3 had to have a, a, had to have some internet stuff that had to have uh, what kind of things people are doing on the internet, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's been part of its upgrade. Uh, scan is different. Scan is uh, more to look at the varieties of things that one sees in a hospital situation and helps is designed to help clinicians look at some basic uh, speech, neurobehavioral, neuropsychological uh, aspects that might, and it's sort of built on the, the cattle model, but that might help you to decide what someone's problems really are. So it's a hospital, it's basically, um, I think from my perspective, and I think Lisa Billman's perspective too, it's much more concerned with helping the clinician who is going to be in short-term contact with the patient help to decide what needs to be done with him. So, but it's still the same kind of formula. So that's that one. Okay. So the SCAN, which stands for Scales of Cognitive and Communicative Ability for Neurorehabilitation, um, is focused on helping the clinician kind of prioritize areas to work on with this patient that they may not have for a very long period of time. Yes, and I mean, certainly if someone has a head injury, some things are going to be different than if he has... Uh, that, that if he enters the hospital with a stroke but a history of dementia, they're just, I mean, so it's looking more broadly at, at actually some neuropsychological stuff too. Okay. Um, so is there a population or a type of patient who would maybe not be appropriate for the scan? Or is this, is this applicable for a wide range of patients? I think it's, I think it's wide range. You might decide in the middle, but... You don't need to do the whole thing, but because yeah, I got the idea. But uh, <laughs> uh, no, I think it it sort of helps guide a short, you know, a short period of interaction with the patient. So I'm thinking, like on acute care, sometimes people are only there for like two days, four days, and then on inpatient rehab, it would be like more like two weeks, three weeks. So is this more geared towards inpatient rehabilitation patients? It's more, deal, more geared to two, three weeks or early uh, early rehab center than, uh, uh, than uh, more chronic uh, cattle. Okay, 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 good. I, I'm glad you made that distinction. So cattle is the communication activities of daily living. And as you mentioned, it's in its third edition. So then the cattle would be more appropriate for like outpatients or skilled nursing facilities. So more chronic patients, would you mm -hmm. say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Good. Thank you so much for making that distinction. Cause I always like kind of having in my head, um, cause you know, I'm primarily an outpatient therapist, but I also work in, I dabble as you will in acute care and inpatient rehab. And so, you know, spanning those three settings, I need to also fluctuate between assessments and know what's appropriate for which setting. And so that really helps kind of give me a, a really much better idea about which ones are appropriate. Thank you. You're welcome. Mind if I talk about another little thing that I've done that isn't a test, but is kind of like, uh, and it, it, it's kind of like an assessment procedure that helps design therapy that's maybe a little unusual. Can I talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, please do. This just got published by uh, in AJSLP, I think, maybe a month ago. 
and it's work of Margie Forbes and uh, Davida Fahm and Brian McLinney and I. Um, and essentially, I have this belief that one really doesn't look so much at what somebody can't do, but rather the important thing is looking at what somebody can do and looking at what kind of communicative strengths he has. So it isn't all about teaching you to read or to write. Certainly a lot of it is. But it's also looking at if you can't get your message across that way, what do you do? And how can you capitalize on that so that, for example, if you can't talk and you're probably stuck with that uh, to some pretty great degree, then how do you get your messages across? Well, maybe write them, maybe gesture them, maybe, uh, well, a lot of things. Uh, and so this measure is designed as a clinical tool, not as a test, but it uh, looks like a test, but it isn't. Um, it looks at, it's called the Famous People Protocol. And it takes, yeah. it takes the tough act of naming people, particularly, I'm here to tell you, a problem that gets worse as you get older. Uh, but, okay, how do you get your messages across? I mean, what do people do when they play charades? And this is sort of a formal look at charades with a few other little flips along the side. But it's you know, look look at people's pictures. And that's hard. Who is this? Okay. And then, however, the the deal is they're very carefully instructed in supported communication. If you can't say it, say if you can say his name for heaven's sakes, do. But if you can't say it, what can you do instead if you know who it is? So that's that's the basic bottom line. And it as far as anything I've ever had fun doing, this is probably the most fun thing I've ever done. And I just wanted to throw it into the hopper. Yes, um I a friend posted a link. I don't remember if it was on Facebook or Instagram or wherever I came across it. And I was absolutely intrigued. And so I, I looked up the article and I was like, okay, how do I get my hands on these materials and, and learn how to do this with my patients? It's in the public domain. Yeah, it's out there and available. So I will link to it in the show notes, of course, to guide other folks to it um, so that you can learn more about it and access this really cool functional approach that is it is fun because it's it is almost kind of built like that activity that many of us are very familiar with well uh, and you know it's available on the uh, the, the aphasia bank website and uh, it's there the stimuli are there the forms are there the whole thing is there the paper actually talked about people with severe ages, but the fact is it's also fun to do with people who do, you know, decently well because they're pretty, they have a, maybe a bigger repertoire of strategies that they can use. But I've had people with, they were all the type of people who, whose data we analyzed were people who had been given the Western aphasia battery and were below, and there was, like 87 or something like that. So it was half of that sample, those below the mean, uh, just to see all the stuff they could do. And it was, a, I mean, I've, I've never done anything to do it. That was that much fun in the clinic. So there it is. Use it. Enjoy it. That, yeah, that is really good to hear because um, I always encourage my patients to use whatever means necessary to communicate their message. And something I have found in the past couple months working with some folks is that that idea doesn't seem to appeal to them too much. They heavily rely on the verbal message. And I'm like, however you can express your intent, that's a win. That's a success. Like, let's see you achieve that. And it's 
old team. That's a counseling job. Like, you know, just because you can't talk doesn't mean you can't communicate. Ah, that, that's, that's not obvious. You have to help people understand that because uh, you're absolutely right. If it can't be said, it isn't good. And, um, that reminds me, I actually listened to your podcast that you recorded for um, aphasiaaccess.org. And there were two things that you said in that episode that just, I don't know, they were just the most simple but yet beautiful things like I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so like yeah. I wrote them down like a maniac. And so I'm just going to pull them up now and um, read them because I, I feel like they're worth saying again, if people don't have time to go look at um, or listen to that other episode. Um, so one of the things that you said was that I just can't see that speech and language therapy is anything but a relationship centered experience. So in a relationship, you got to know somebody. Yeah, who somebody is, is, is the clue. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite patients with aphasia years ago was a very irascible man with global aphasia. And I mean, he was, he was just uh, difficult. And I, he was just wonderful. And his big deal was he didn't want to be uh, cheated when he traveled. And he traveled with a travel companion. It's globally amazing. Traveled with a travel companion and didn't want anybody taking advantage of him. So most of what we worked at, I'm sorry, it was making change. It was counting what the, what somebody gave you back when you tried. And that was the center of his therapy. And he could get really, really angry. And one day, I guess I probably shouldn't say this, but I will say it anyway. One day, I did something that he was very unhappy with, and he threw his cane at me. And I picked up the cane and threw it right back at him. And I was, there were students who were sitting in an observation room, and I could hear this, <gasps> the other side. And this man who was just, I mean, he, he was just, he was just a toughie, you know. He cracked up. And <laughs> I just, it was almost automatic on my part. I mean, you know, that isn't something you do. And <laughs> so treat people like people, you know? Yeah, yeah, in a kind way. I mean, but I see what you're saying. You know, like if someone just keeps giving it to you, giving it to them, in a sense, give it right back to them. And they'll see that, you know, you, you, you see the person. If someone's being highly sarcastic with you, and you make a joke right back. Oh, I like I've done that and I can just see people like relax. Like I can visibly see their shoulders relax a little bit and then the change in their expression. They're like, oh, okay. They're not they're not here to hold my hand and pet me. Like they treat me like a person and we can get through this. And we share an expertise. He's an expert. You know, <laughs> you're an expert in aphasia and his wife is an expert in being involved with this guy who has this problem and therefore you are affected too so yeah it's all people's stuff oh i wanted to read the other one too i thought that one was really good um okay so you said i just can't buy the notion that we can fix language i think we have to put language in the context of the person if we don't know the person we're going to be ineffective I'm like, just right there, in a nutshell, that's aphasia therapy. <laughs> all in and all out. All right. So now I'm ready to transition into talk about the future of aphasia therapy. So where are we headed? What's next for us? What's coming down the pike? What do you see? What do you want to see happen? What do you want to see us clinicians leading the charge on and doing from here on out? Oh, I think... I, this is a slow, slow change. 
But I really think that we can't give up and that therapy is moving in the direction of becoming personalized. It's becoming relevant. It's becoming LPAA-like, involving the family. Uh, and if it's really working for improving the quality of life, and it's a long, slow log, but I don't think, I, I, I think we're closer to winning it now than we were, I know we are, than we were before LPA, before patient access, before all of, all of that kind of growth in that direction. It's going in that direction. And be part of it. I think that's, you know, don't wait for somebody else to do it. It ain't gonna happen. If somebody out there is like me and was really dependent on practicing, just focusing on the impairment of the person as they were presenting, um, what would you recommend be like some first steps that they could take? Oh, I think the first step, I think the first step is uh, kind of easy. It's what words do you want to, I mean, I, I, I'm kept on words and, uh, you know, not so much on syntax, but what are the important words in your life? And if you come up with 20, those are the 20 words that should be, however you're going to drill, that's, those are the words. And I think that's very first step to personalizing treatment. And I thank Becky Kayyem for, for that uh, most heartily. Um, but uh, it's, it's all the difference in the world. And, you know, if you sit down and think about it, I do this, I did this the other day, just playing around. I thought, okay, let me figure out what I say in an hour this morning. I'm home alone. What do I say? Well, I learned out. You already learned two of them. Harley, who's actually Harley Barley, and Booker, who's Booker T. And there they are. Or Booker D. Snooker D. I mean, <laughs> something. And then the surprise of my morning was the phone rings. I pick it up. I know it's a robocall or something. And I say, excuse me, do I know you? I said it 20 times in the space of an hour and a half. And it's a great way to get people off the phone, by the way. But, you know, I thought, I had aphasia. I mean, I'd probably just hang up the phone. But as I do, I can be sort of snarky about it, you know, and there I am on my list for that day. Yeah. It's a kind of stupid example, but it gets the point across. I think that's really good. I think that would be a wonderful exercise for each of us who work with patients with aphasia to, to think about in an hour, what's the content of our language? What, what messages are we trying to communicate? And write down a list. What are our for, I don't know, lack of a better phrase, what are our own core words? And how does it change based on what setting we're in? You know, so if I'm somebody who goes out to the grocery store a couple times a week to pick things up, what kind of language do I need to be successful in that environment? And it's not going to be the names of the products you're picking up, unless they don't have any. And then it's going to be more like, what are you, what's the small talk at the cashier? What's the, you know, uh, what if you can't find somebody? Where's the, you know, you know, a long, long time ago, and this was very influential in my life, there was a woman named Sylvia Ashton Warner, who was a school teacher in New Zealand, and she taught Maori children to read. And she wrote a book, I think it's titled, I think it's called Teacher. 
but I read it years and years and years ago. But she said, teaching reading isn't hard. She said, you just have to learn what's organic. And he said, so you have to ask somebody what are the words that count, and then you write them down for him. And then he goes home with four or five words. And I guarantee the next day he will know those four or five words. He will know the writing for those four or five words. And she said, and I just, I really love this. She said, if you can't get a child to do this, he doesn't get it. There's four words that always work. They are mommy, daddy, kiss, five words. Frightened ghost. Now, frightened is like very British, so it's we're probably scared in, in the United States. But she said, they take a couple of days, but they'll know mommy, daddy, kiss, frightened ghost, because they're organic to kids, knowing about the supernatural and being scared. And, you know, and I, I just, I, it stuck with me for years. Yeah, I I agree with that. And finding, I feel like that's really tying into things that are like personally motivating. But beyond that, as we mentioned, like it's organic to the children. It's just tied in with their existence, like how they identify the two most important people in their life, mommy and daddy, and how they express that affection, you know, kiss. And then apparently, surprisingly, and then up their obsession with the paranormal paranormal and wanting to know ghost and frightened that's, that's a little strange but okay <laughs> I, I don't think it's strange i think that kind of you know that gets to some important organic concepts i mean i believe you i do it's been a long time since i've been a kid so <laughs> Wow, we have covered a lot of ground. I'm loving it. You're a very good interviewer. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> it's easy when my guests do all the work for me. <laughs> In other words, don't shut up. <laughs> like me. Those are my favorite guests. I'm like, yay. So I think the last one of the last questions I want to ask you is. If there is a listener out there who is really passionate about providing high-level aphasia therapy, um, where would you direct them? Besides, I mean, and probably you could say everything we've talked about, Leanne, literally, you know, aphasia access, getting all in, the LPA model, um, learning more about aphasia bank, which is a really cool resource as well. And um, is there... A specific researcher or another clinician out there that you think has really impacted the field of aphasia therapy or a group of people? I, I think I think the that that cadre of people who really started the aphasia center movement, people like Roberta Elman, people like uh, uh, Catherine Shelley that I mentioned from uh, West Texas, uh, Darlene Williamson. Uh, uh, Mike and Elaine Adler, people like that. I think Denise McCall. I mean, they roll out of my. I mean, there's just I don't. I'm sure I'm going to be very unhappy at somebody I forgot. Oh, the Australians! My goodness, all the Australians in the world, and and, and her her gang, uh, and uh, just I mean. The movement is growing and it's coalescing and keeping your eye on what those folks are doing uh, and visiting with them, well, getting to know them. Well, yeah, and this is a wonderful way to do that, by the way. I think so, too. I'm learning tons. I'm loving it. Oh, and I need to say, because I really mean this, that I... You know, I have a foot in impairment, too, and that's a whole different scene to me, and that isn't sort of what I'm, I mean, all my 
all the people I haven't thought of who have been very influential to me uh, in uh, in in a more general impairment frame. Uh, that's embarrassing that I didn't say that, but it's it, it's. I think the, the focus is really on the other. So, but there's a bunch of those good guys out there too, for sure. Oh yeah, I you know it's we need pieces of that. We can't pretend like the impairment aspect of things doesn't influence all of it. It does. It's just I think as I've studied and learned more about this, I've realized I've been. Um, giving that area too much of the attention and focus and not taking into account the actual person with aphasia and what their needs are and their family members and that it, it is much more of a balance that needs to happen rather than me my very narrow focus about okay well here's all the things that you did not do well with on the test those are obviously the things that we need to focus on to get you better here's a worksheet i'm here to help you with it and to give you strategies and like that, that kind of therapy is not nearly as effective as the versions that LPAA is a proponent of and asking us to try. Just give it a shot. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, just give it a try. Uh, and working with families, conversational coaching. I mean, I think that kind of stuff where you really have to pay as much attention to the spouse as to the person with aphasia and how they're transporting issues back and forth. And you can see sometimes that it isn't the problem with the person with aphasia. It's, oh, and my God, I forgot, Aura Kagan and Nina Simmons Mackey. I mean, I'm so, there's just so many really great people that work in this field. Well, I tell you what, over the next hour, as you think of like 20 more names, just email them all to me and we'll put all of them in the show notes so that people can go and like look up their research and their papers and the things that they've done to influence our field. And we can just, I'll keep adding to that list. As soon as you think of another one, you email me and I'll add it. <laughs> all right. Now, earlier um, you mentioned one of the most important things we can do as a clinician is to connect with these people who are out there doing the research, leading the charge, um, people we can learn from. What are some ways in your practice and your experience that you have found some of the best ways for us to connect with other aphasia clinicians and researchers? Oh, I think aphasia access is one. I think uh, I think that I haven't been to ASHA for a while, but I see such lovely things happening at uh, ASHA meetings where you find somebody that you can talk to, and then and I I, I just think that's a a perfectly wonderful thing. Uh, and so meetings like that, uh, clinical phaseology, uh, wherever you can glom on to other people who, you know, are not necessarily think like you, but can, you know, expand your horizons or, uh, it's just fabulous. And I certainly cannot not say, I think one of the best things that can happen to people with aphasia and uh, I think maybe to clinicians too, is that they work with groups. And that they, I mean, people with aphasia learn from others. I mean, watching, uh, I've been involved with the Adler Aphasia Center since it was a poppy. And to watch some of the relationships between people, not just aphasic people, but spouses, uh, you know, it's and between spouses and I mean you know couples and things like it's the the social imperative is lovely and it's I think marvelous the way people help each other and mm -hmm. getting better by watching what other people do fine. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, I think we've covered all of our bases and we've done a really good job talking about the past, the present and the future of aphasia therapy and what's out there. So, Dr. Holland, thank you so much for your substantial contributions to our field. I've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed my life uh, and I've enjoyed this hour. I mean, I've talked too much, but 
<laughs> not at all. I have actually um, had a conversation with another clinician who is um, a voice specialist. So, you know, they just, they work all in voice. And she has this concept that um, we need more, uh, oh, how, like more living history from clinician to clinician about how to have a conversation with a patient and how to transmit that information um, in a way that the patient's going to understand and taking, you know, a clinician who's been in this field with experience behind them and how to like transmit that on. And so that we kind of are passing down our own oral history, so to speak, so we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. And so I feel like we've accomplished a little bit about a little bit of that today. So thank you. And one question, one thing before I go. And that is, I did want you to meet Harley, but I guess you know one because not being social. Uh, that aphasia bank is an incredible resource of things like tapes of groups, tapes of individual people with aphasia. Uh, it has, you know, it has all of the little uh, varieties of things that can happen. And I would really urge people to, you know, to sign on. It's free. Might as well. It isn't going to cost you anything. And uh, and join and look at all the goodies that are there. So excellent. Yeah, I will have links to the Aphasia Bank, Aphasia Access, and all the other wonderful things that we've talked about today up in the show notes. So thank you so much, Dr. Holland. Thank you. It's just been fun. Thank you so much. A sincere debt of gratitude to Dr. Holland for joining me on the podcast to talk shop. It was such a delight. Check out the show notes on speechuncensored.com for resources mentioned in the podcast and links to Dr. Holland's body of work. I'm pleased to announce a new series I'm launching called From Podcast to Practice. Next week's episode will feature Melissa Curley discussing how she's implemented person-centered care. We take a look back at Season 1, Episode 12, with Sarah Barr's talk on meaningful aphasia therapy and discuss how we've tried to implement the material we learned from Sarah in that episode. Melissa is such a good time. I know you'll enjoy that episode. And if you'd like to share your story on how you've implemented something you learned from the podcast, shoot me an email at speechuncensored at gmail.com and we'll talk. Feel free to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I haven't figured out yet, but apparently a lot of reviews help other SLPs find the podcast and make them interested in listening to it too. (laughs) Is there some algorithm for that or something? I don't know, but I love reading your reviews. It keeps me going. So thanks for taking the time to do that. Plus, I can enter you in a giveaway I'm still doing. Just email me a screenshot with your name to speechuncensored at gmail.com and you're in. All right, so go be awesome and keep nourishing your brain so that your practice can flourish. Bye.